what's up everybody welcome to another episode of talking christianity apologetics my name is josh gibbs and today we're going to have jody dillow on who is a member of the free grace alliance we'll be discussing uh, different topics related to free grace such as calvinism lordship salvation and uh, we should be able to tie these things together as it's related to uh, works and salvation and ultimately rewards as it's related to works uh, for the judgment of the believers. So we've got a number of topics that we're going to cover. And at the end, we're going to come to uh, some uh, kind of difficult passages for uh, what would seem to be difficult passages for a free grace position, like Mark 8, Matthew 25. Uh, some of these judgment passages uh, that is debated between Calvinists and Arminians uh, as it's related to works and rewards and kind of the final destiny of the Christian. So stay tuned with us. And uh, we'll give you more information as we as we go um, and, and get into the conversation. But you'll have a chance to interact with uh, Jody as well as if you would like to. Uh, you should be able to see the number on the screen that you can call in at. Uh, and if you're joining on Facebook or YouTube or Twitter uh, or Periscope, you, there should be a link that if, if you hit that link, you'll be able to join the live stream as well uh, when we open it up to you. And you can actually video chat and get your question in uh, with, with you on the stream as well. So anyway, stay tuned, and we'll be right back. Make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks. That one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. Is that The wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you, if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you are justly punished for your sin. To what the scriptures teach, I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men, that he has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them and they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. All right, again, welcome back to another episode of Talking Christianity, everybody. Welcome for those of you who are tuning in live. We thank you for joining live. And uh, today we've got Jody Dillow on to talk about Calvinism, free grace theology, and uh, kind of the partner's paradigm, a uh, term that, um, that is going to be unique and kind of recognized within the free grace community as it's related to rewards for the Christian and that side of the conversation. So it should be fun today. We're going to cover a wide variety of uh, kind of topics and subtopics, so we'll see how far we get. But anyways, uh, Mr. Dillo, welcome to the show. It's good to have you on. Thank you. I'm looking forward to the interaction. Absolutely. So for those of you who may not be familiar with uh, who Jody Dillo is, I want to tell you a little bit about him. He is the author of several books, including Final Destiny, The Future Reign of the Servant Kings, which we're going to reference in uh, this live stream uh, multiple times. We'll pull out some quotes and get some, some more thoughts on that. Another book is The Waters Above, Earth's Pre-Flood Vapor Canopy, Speaking in Tongues, and Solomon on Sex. So he's one of the co-authors of 
Intimacy Ignited, Conversations Couple to Couple, along with co-authors Linda Dillo, his wife, and Pete and Lorraine Pentis. I hope I'm saying that last name right. Uh, he just recently finished speaking at the 2020 Free Grace Alliance Conference, which you can find online for free. And uh, I would also point you towards some of the Final Destiny videos that are available in, in the Animated Bible Theology podcast. If you've, if you've not seen those before, the Final Destiny book that he's written has got uh, some animations about what that book is about and uh, some differences in theology as well. So Dr. Dillo came to Christ while majoring in electrical engineering at Oregon State University in 1963. And upon graduation, he went to Dallas Theological Seminary, where he majored in New Testament Greek and received his Ph.D. in 1978 in, in systematic theology. While there, he directed the Campus Crusade work at SMU and later at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. In 1977, he served briefly as a visiting professor in systematic theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. And in 1978, God led Jody... Uh, and his wife Linda to Vienna, Austria, where they were used of God to found and direct the, the ministry, which is now known as BEE World, Biblical Education by Extension World. For 14 years, they ministered behind the Iron Curtain, and then they moved to Hong Kong in 1992 to launch BEE in, in China, South Korea, and Vietnam. They now live in Monument, Colorado, and have five grown children and ten grandchildren. And uh, so I would just encourage those of you who are, who are listening to this, uh, whether it's on audio or you're watching this live now, go and listen to the entire episode because we are going to cover a lot of ground. Uh, and we, I think personally we've kind of saved the best for the last. Uh, so stay, stay tuned through the, the whole episode and uh, you'll, you'll get a lot of good information as we go along. So, all right, let's go ahead and dive into it. Uh, welcome again to the show, Mr. Dillo. It's good to have you on. I think first we're going to start with uh, free grace theology and free grace soteriology. Um, so if you could, I think this would be a kind of a good place to start in the conversation is just um, what free grace theology is and, and how this is something that you got involved with as, as adopting this theology and, and writing books about it. Oh, I think you might be muted. I think you're muted here. I am. Okay. Can go. you hear me now? I can hear you now. Okay. I must... Okay. Actually, I got started while working behind the Iron Curtain, particularly in the uh, country of Romania. Uh, I completed uh, my doctorate at Dallas and was teaching at a seminary, but Linda and I, hearts uh, were always on becoming missionaries. So we moved to Vienna, Austria back in 78 to launch a biblical training ministry behind the Iron Curtain. In one of my first trips in uh, to the country of Romania, uh, I was in Bucharest teaching for, I think it was five days on the book of Hebrews with a group of 12 Baptist leaders. It was a fantastic time. Uh, they had never heard anybody <laughs> go through you know, a book verse by verse, word for word, and they would uh, shout, fantastic, fantastic. And they were always asking me to slow down. Uh, I, I never got that kind of response uh, in the States, but uh, it, they, they're really hungry people. Everything went well till we got to Hebrews 6. When they found out that I believed in eternal security, uh, 
They were mm -hmm. flabbergasted. They couldn't believe that anybody uh, <laughs> who had studied the Bible could actually believe that. Yeah. And of course, Hebrews chapter six, where it talks about falling away is a key pass passage. Well, <clears throat> I, uh, uh, one of the pastors, Vasily Talosh, uh, who was a former lawyer, led the prosecution. <laughs> it was a very friendly, warm time. There was no hostility. But they, they hit me with a lot of good questions, and they invited me back. And this is where my thinking really began to focus. They wanted to spend three days talking about uh, predestination and eternal security and some of these things. By the end of that time, all of them but one had basically embraced the notion that salvation could not be lost. But as I walked home at night, I was troubled. Mm -hmm. Because in the book of Hebrews, I was arguing that this book was addressed to true believers. Yeah. Yeah. And the problem about falling away was not falling away from salvation, but falling away from their inheritance, falling away from the pathway of maturity leading to a more abundant entrance into the kingdom. But as I was going home, it occurred to me that when I went to other passages that had these warnings, instead of arguing that they were based upon warnings addressed to true Christians, I was telling people, no, these are just professing Christians. Right. So in John 15, for example, the branches that's cut off and burned in the fire. Well, he was never a believer to begin with, I was arguing. So I was aware that I was inconsistent. And I had to take into consideration all the warnings. Yeah. And that led to about eight years of research, which result in an earlier book called The Reign of the Servant Kings, where I laid out the free grace position, as I interpreted it, the partner position. So that's how I got into it. It took me eight years of struggle because I came out of the doctoral program, uh, a four-point Calvinist. And one of the critical points is perseverance in the saints. If you, uh, Calvin argued, as did his followers, that a true Christian will persevere in holiness and good works to the final hour. And if he doesn't do that, then he was never born again to begin with. Right. right. Well, the reign of the servant kings and final destiny uh, are built on the assumption in part, at least that's one of the assumptions, that that's false. True believers like Solomon or Saul or Philetus or Amineus or Alexander, not many others, can fall away. In fact, Solomon ended his life worshiping Baals. Right. So at any rate, Final Destiny was an attempt to address all the passages that I could think of that were related to this subject. Okay, so um, that would kind of lead me to, uh, in, in my own life at our church, I'm in a group that's called a Leaders Made group. And in, in this group, we're going through Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology and last week, we, we just went through chapter 8, which is kind of about the, the divine determinism, essentially. It's the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, and those sides of, of the conversation, which um, ultimately that gave me an opportunity to talk about uh, free grace th theology uh, to that group of guys so that they could understand kind of the differences of 
where we're where we're coming from as it's related to works to rewards and how those things are related to salvation so uh, they they asked me the question that they asked me is the question that I'll ask you um, and 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 that's just kind of an overview of what free grace theology actually is how would you explain to somebody who's never heard of free grace theology what it is and how it would be different from somebody like Wayne Grudem as a Calvinist or even Arminianism? I, I present it as kind of a mediating position between the Arminians uh, and the Calvinists. Uh, the Calvinists, you can summarize what they believe pretty simply by Tulip. Uh, total depravity, unconditional election, irresistible grace, limited or unlimited atonement, and uh, uh, the perseverance of the saints in holiness. Now, when the Cal when the uh, Arminian comes to a carnal Christian, he says, "Well, he may have been born again to begin with, but he lost it, and he's on uh, he's headed toward damnation." When the Calvinist, really not Calvin so much, but his followers uh, come across a carnal Christian. Uh, in fact, Calvin argued this at the Council of Trent very effectively, uh, that uh, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is not alone. It's a, right. it's a clever little saying. But his solution to the Catholic challenge that Protestants are advocating antinomianism is, mm -hmm. well, if he uh, is living, if he's not living the life, that means he's never born again to begin with. So either way, if you're not living the life, that means you're not a Christian and you're headed toward final damnation. The only difference is the theoretical difference behind the fact. Now, the partner paradigm is kind of halfway between the uh, Calvinist and the, uh, my partner, I mean free grace paradigms, is halfway between the Calvinist and the Arminian. Uh, and it has a couple of points, and I'll just read them off the sentences, and if you want to ask questions, uh, you know, you can later. But first of all, uh, those from the free grace perspective believe that a born-again person will normally give some evidence of growth and grace and spiritual interest in commitment, but it may or may not persist to the end of life. Secondly, free grace argues that justification is by faith alone. And the difference between these other views is that submission to the Lordship of Christ is not a requirement uh, for becoming a Christian. Uh, one does not have to promise to change his life or to turn from sin. In other words, that hooker doesn't have to promise she'll never turn another trick. And that African chief doesn't have to promise that he'll get not get rid of 19 of his 20 wives. Yeah. Uh, what Jesus says is these are important issues and we're going to talk about that. But the issue right now is I love you and I want to give you something for free. And that's the distinctive of the free grace position. It's really another statement of Paul or of John's statement in, in the book of Revelation that the waters of life come without cost. 
One does not need to be a fully committed disciple to become a Christian. The third characteristic of uh, free, and I know that raises a lot of good and justifiably good questions. Third characteristic is also important, and that is the assurance of salvation is found by looking outwardly to Christ. In this, I'm referring to the uh, end of Romans 8. Uh, who can condemn? You know, Christ has died. And Paul asks these four questions. Uh, whereas the uh, reform believe that you have to examine yourself. And Dr. Grudem is uh, very thorough on this. Uh, one must examine himself to see if he has a sufficient amount of good works to satisfy the claims of conscience that he's in fact born again. Where, but Calvin didn't believe that. In fact, Calvin himself uh, denounced that view. He said at least the sure damnation. By that he meant spiritual and uh, psychological ruin. And uh, he said, the testimony of Christ is better than a thousand evidences of good works to me. Yeah. In fact, he used this metaphor, Christ is the mirror in which we contemplate our election. By that he meant you look externally, outwardly to the beauty of the gospel promise and the person of Christ to derive your assurance. You don't do it by looking inwardly to examine your works. A fourth characteristic of free grace is that Christians might fail to persevere in the faith. And in some cases, they might even uh, deny the faith altogether, as uh, Hebrews 3.12 says. So continuous growth is commanded. It's possible for the Christian, however, not to do that. Fifth, the warning in passages in the New Testament address regenerate born-again people, not merely professing people. And their purpose is to motivate true Christians to persevere to the end in godly living. Sixth, a life of good works is the intended and commanded outcome of justification, but it's not inevitable. Seventh, uh, those who have believed in Christ and have been generated by the Holy Spirit can never fall away from salvation. Uh, they'll be preserved in a state of salvation to the final, final hour and be saved. And then finally, the motive for godly living is not to be found either in the fear of losing salvation, the Arminian, or wondering if one is saved, the experimental predestinarian. Rather, it is to be found negatively in the possible, possible fear of disapproval at the judgment seat of Christ, and positively in gratitude for a salvation already assured, and looking forward to hearing the the master say, well done. So those are the basic differences. Those eight points basically outline the free grace paradigm. That's good. So, and, and naturally that's going to bring up a lot of subcategory questions, which I'm sure we'll get a chance to get into a little bit as, as we get to uh, more into to our conversation. But one thing that I brought up in our group um, to kind of illustrate uh, just a real practical difference or something that you could look at yourself is just a question that I asked myself years ago, and I asked the other guys uh, to, to ask themselves the same question, and that would be, if, if I were just walking down the street and met just a random person on the street, uh, would, I, would I be able to truthfully and honestly, without violating my own conscience, go up to that person and tell them that Jesus loves them and died for them? 
I, I think that that kind of would be a way of illustrating that point. But I think obviously you're going to get to you're going to get to um, what some people would say are problems within free grace theology as it's related to works and salvation and kind of those warning passages that you had mentioned in Hebrews 6 and those things that everybody's got to wrestle with at some point. But um, what have you experienced as kind of the, the main objections against uh, free grace th- theology? And uh, um, I, I guess then we could get into some of those critiques and, and go from there if it does diminish the gospel like it's, like it's claimed to. Uh, but where would you go from there? What are the main objections against free grace theology? Well, like there's five or six. I don't know if we can get into all of them, but I'll comment a little bit. Uh, let me get my glasses on here so I can read my Bible. <laughs> um, it is commonly believed that uh, free grace uh, leads to uh, antinomianism. In other words, a person can believe in Christ and because he doesn't have the possible threat of eternal damnation hanging over his head, uh, he may not be sufficiently motivated to persevere in a life of good works to the final hour. Uh, In other words, a person can believe or can reject Jesus as Lord but still be saved. Now, a couple of comments on that objection. First of all, you can't reject Jesus as Lord. But by Lord, in that passage in Romans 10, Paul does not mean the boss of my life. He's talking about believing that Jesus is God. You can't reject him as the Lord God. Jesus said that himself in uh, the Gospel of John, where he said, unless you believe that I am, referring to Yahweh in the Old Testament, um, you will die in your sins. So that objection is a little bit off the mark. Um, But the other question is, uh, there's a difference between the objective fact that Jesus is Lord uh, and the subjective response of making Jesus master of one's life. I'm kind of saying the same thing in a little bit different way. Uh, but basically I'm, I'm camping on the fact that, that they, they use that verse very frequently, and they use other ones, but I'm just zeroing in on one, uh, to say that you've got to submit to the Lordship to become a Christian. Now, a related issue here is uh, the Bible clearly teaches, they believe, that in order to become a Christian, one must repent. And there's many places in the Bible where people are told to repent. John the Baptist said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and be baptized, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus said similar things. So the question comes up, um, doesn't that say that we have to turn from all known sin? Right, right. Well, what I did is I got out the uh, Septuagint Greek Old Testament, and I looked up every single reference in the uh, Greek Testament, Greek Old Testament, to the Greek words for repentance, metanoia, repent, repentance, and metanoeo, to repent. 
And the interesting thing was that every place that uh, metanoeo is translated from the Hebrew into Greek, and every single place it is translating the Hebrew word nacham, which means to regret, admit guilt, uh, confess. Uh, there's another Hebrew word, shuv, which does mean to turn, but it's never uh, translated in the Greek Old Testament by metanoeo. In fact, it's translated by the Greek word epistrepho, which does mean to turn. So my point is, is that it's true that repentance is required for salvation. Uh, but it doesn't mean turn from sin. It means to admit your sin and your need of a savior and be open to change. Uh, now, there's different views within the free grace movement about that issue, which is related to this lordship question. Uh, Charles Bing whom I have great respect for, he and Dr. Charles Ryrie both teach that uh, metanoeo, repent, means to change one's mind. And actually, I'm sort of saying the same thing. You're changing your mind and saying, yeah, I'm guilty. I'm not innocent. But that could also be applied more broadly to changing your mind about who Jesus Christ is. Yeah. He's not a crucified criminal, but he's the resurrected Lord God. And you have to change your mind about who he is. Uh, another view uh, is that uh, you do have to turn from sin as a precursor, uh, very similar to the reform view, except it's not a, uh, a demand for submission to the Lordship of Christ, but kind of an intention, not a promise. Uh, so it's a little kind of a modified uh, view. I prefer the view that uh, because the New Testament writers use the Septuagint and the Tep Septuagint did not understand metanoeo to be uh, turned from sin, but understood it to be uh, acknowledge guilt or regret, uh, then it is required. You don't go to the doctor unless, you're believe, unless you uh, believe you're, you're sick. And you don't come to Christ for salvation from sin unless you have a sickness of sin. So I believe you do have to repent in that sense. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think uh, we, when it comes to the conversation of repentance, it's it's going to be a conversation that turns towards either either turning from your sin or or an inward change that is is something that is it it seems like to me there's more of an impact than just hey I've changed my mind about Christ I've changed my mind about my sin but it's something that's radical that changes it's it's it seems to be more than just like hey I've thought about this and I came to a conclusion. Um, that's that's opposing where I was prior to this, and naturally the question would arise of what does repentance lead to, um, and that would that would lead into some other some other questions. But it seems like those would be what you're saying are the main objections for free grace theology, and and I've even heard that that free grace theology uh, leads people to easy believism. That, that it, we would have false conversions. We've got people who think that they're saved, that they're not. We're preaching kind of, it's, it's, it would be a watered down gospel in that sense. But what would your response be to someone who might think that free grace theology is just EV believism? Um, and maybe we should start by <laughs> defining what, what easy, easy believism might be in that sense. Well, usually uh, 
Now, let me give you an illustration. When I was doing some research at Cambridge University, I think it was two years ago, a very prominent evangelical scholar was there. I mentioned his name, you would recognize him immediately. He's a really nice guy. He's totally anti-free grace and very committed to reform theology. And I took him out for lunch. And I asked him, what is your understanding of free grace theology? And he said, well, that's the view that you can walk down the front in an evangelistic meeting, check a box on a commitment card, and then live any way you want and go to heaven when you die. And I responded to this caller and said, I'll make up a name, Bill. I have never met a free grace person that believes that, nor have I ever read in any of their works, their writings, that they believe that. Furthermore, it's not even an inference of what they believe. And he stared at me kind of blankly <laughs> because he thought, you know, he, he obviously didn't know what he was talking about. And that's my feeling about Wayne Grudem yeah. uh, in his book where he takes on free grace theology and he camps on this point. Um, so why isn't it easy believism? Well, first of all, it's not easy to believe. Right. You've got to believe that uh, God became a man and that God died. God can be thirsty. You've got a God-man. He's rejected by his people. And furthermore, he did something absolutely impossible. He rose from the dead. But it is simple to believe. It's not a complicated thing. Like the, uh, I call them experimental. By the way, I use the term in the book, experimental predestinarian where that comes from is that they believe that in order to assure yourself that you're saved, you have to conduct an experiment. And the experiment is you're testing whether or not you have, whether you believe, number one, number two, whether you've got sufficient evidence to prove that that salvation is well or is, is valid. Uh, so it's a very simple thing to believe. Uh, it's not necessarily easy to believe, but if it was difficult to, to believe, uh, how many people would do it? I read a book by Alan Stanley. I can mention his name. He's a friend of mine uh, on uh, the on how on the conditions necessary for salvation. So on the one hand, he'll say that um, salvation is free. Uh, it's by faith alone. Then the other hand, he goes through a list of about six things that you have to do in order to get it. And uh, Thomas Schreiner and Ardell Kennedy did the same thing in their book, The Race Run Before Us. On the one hand, they say that it's completely free. Then they give uh, statements like you've got to exert all your effort, just like an athlete in a race, uh, tremendous willpower, self-discipline in order to make it to the end and get into the kingdom. Uh, so they make it pretty complicated. In fact, uh, there was a lot of reaction to uh, Schreiner's book. So he wrote another one and he says he wrote it to clarify some misconceptions. <laughs> and, uh, then he made it worse. <laughs> he had a whole list. I remember I was reading uh, in uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a beloved pastor of Westminster Chapel uh, several or many decades ago. And he had a list of nine things you had to do. Hmm. So salvation isn't easy. 
It's very difficult for the Reformed. But for Jesus in the Bible, there's one requirement. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Yep, it's it's simple, but it's not easy. And it honestly, I think uh, um, it, I might have taken that out of your playbook without without knowing that, because that's, that's something that I talk about all the time. It's not easy to believe the gospel. It's not easy to believe that God became a man. How do you understand uh, a metaphysical, um, eternal God who created everything, who, who takes on flesh and becomes a man and dies as a man and has a, a nature as a man, but a nature as God. And, the, and those, the, how, do you, how do you wrap your mind around those things? How do we wrap our mind yeah. around some concepts that are seemingly difficult, that, that, um, that are not easy, but can be simple? And I think that that's a good way to kind of sum it up. But when, when we're talking about what free grace theology is. And for those of you who are viewing live right now, and you may have more questions, you may have never heard this term, you may have, you may want to look into free grace theology and read some books on it. There's scholarly, scholarly works, there's popular works on it. Um, but what would you recommend, Jody, to someone who wants to study free grace theology a little further material-wise um, for them to read, whether it's scholarly or popular? Well, the books that impacted me at the beginning were uh, The Gospel Under Siege by Zane Hodges. Uh, it's, it's a simple book. It's very short. Um, I think another place to look for some books that are good is to go to the Free Grace Alliance website. It's freegracealliance.org or com. I think it's org. And they will have a whole bunch of books from various scholars uh, addressing uh, that situation. So rather than me just reel off a bunch that I've read, yeah. we just recommend that you go to freegracealliance.org. I think it's org. It's org or com. <laughs> <laughs> okay. They'll give you a lot of good suggestions of books. Okay. Perfect. So go check that out, guys. One thing that you mentioned earlier was the uh, partner paradigm. Uh, it, now, can you tell us exactly what that is and how it's related to free grace theology? Well, that's basically what I was mapping out at the beginning. And I went through those eight points at the beginning of our discussion that characterized the partner uh, paradigm. Um, the, what I can... Uh, I mean, I, I'll highlight it real quick. Uh, they, the partner believes, which is free grace, that people will normally give some evidence of growth and grace and works in life. They believe that it's by faith alone and repentance and submission to the Lordship is not necessary. And they believe that uh, assurance comes by looking externally, objectively to Christ and the gospel promise and not to my works. The partners believe that uh, Christians might fail to persevere like Solomon did. Not all are going to make it to the end living godly lives. Uh, the other characteristic is that they believe that uh, it's a the warnings, say like Hebrews 6, John 15, for example, are addressed to people who are born again, not people who merely have professed to be born again, but they're not really born again. Uh the, those who believed in Christ uh, will never fall away from salvation. That's another characteristic of the partner, contrast to the Arminian. 
And finally, the, the motivation for godly living is grounded on the grace of God and seeking to hear him say, well done, plus the possibility of a, of a negative assessment of one's life at the judgment seat of Christ. So this, those eight things comprise the partner paradigm. Okay, so get those eight things down, guys, because I think that's going to bring some of the subcategories up of what we're talking about with repentance and works. And and uh, I, I think the distinctions for me um, is something that free grace theology does a really good job of making strong distinctions between the relationship of works and repentance and rewards with salvation and as it's related to this life and on into eternity, which I think necessarily would be some categorical differences that lead to topics like James chapter 2 with works. Um, and I think that may be a good place to kind of sum up our free grace theology section for this conversation and then transition into Calvinism and hopefully get to some of those uh, problem passages. But you, you see the idea of repentance in James 2 as it's related to faith and works. And and typically on either side, you'll hear, you'll hear uh, kind of a, um, it, the relationship of faith to works and what you quoted earlier with what Calvin described as um, faith and works. A, a faith without works would be a dead faith. And I think that you're going you're gonna to get differences in what it, what it means to be a dead faith, whether it's rendered useless, whether it is a useless faith whether it's a faith that has come to die because of no works, uh, or if works are necessary to make faith alive and to keep faith alive. And maybe there's some more categories within that, but um, maybe, you could, maybe you could give kind of a short explanation for, for what James 2 is talking about on the relationship of works and faith. Okay, I'll, we'll do the elevator speech. <laughs> elevator speech in verse 14 of chapter 2, he says, If a man says he has faith, but he, uh, <clears throat> but he has no works, can that faith save him? Now, there's two words there used that we need to define. One is faith, and the other is saved. And what do they mean for James? Uh, this is easy to figure out. All you have to do is get out of concordance and look up every instance of faith in the book of James. There's because it can be construed in two different ways. One is faith means the initial transaction by which you trust Christ for salvation and are justified. But the other way faith is used in the Bible is as a walk of faith, living the Christian life. And if you look up those verses in James where faith is used, pistuo, the verb, pistis, the, the noun, it always refers to a walk of faith. So when James talks about can that faith save him, he's talking about can that walk of faith. There were people there saying, well, let's look at the word saved. You can look up all those verses. Every time the word saved is used, sozo or soteria, the noun in, uh, in the book of James, it never means deliverance from hell. For example, in James 5, it means to be healed. In James 1, uh, it means to be saved from that downward spiral of uh, temptation, lust, sin, and death, meaning spiritual and psychological ruin, or possibly the sin unto death. And in James 5, it does refer to the sin unto death, physical death. 
So the question here for James is not whether these people are saved. In fact, he says they have, they hold their faith. They have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He addresses them as believers, my children, brothers. Uh, but their problem was, is that they were not living the Christian life. They were not walking by faith. And hence, they couldn't be saved from the temporal consequences of sin. That is the sin unto death or the downward spiral into spiritual and psychological ruin described in James chapter 1. So those key words, faith and save, are critical for understanding. And then he says later that faith without works is dead. And the Greek word, as you pointed out, means uh, useless. Well, useless for what? For getting you into heaven? No. Uh, James defines what he's talking about in the preceding verse. It's uh, useless for getting a favorable uh, report at, for, by, when judged by the uh, law of liberty uh, in uh, just the preceding verses in James 2, 12 and 13. It's talking about you'll have no uh, nothing to uh, commend yourself for honor at the judgment seat of Christ. It's utterly useless for that. But he also means it's utterly useless in meeting the needs of people who have needs. It's a it's a pointless faith. It's a useless faith. In fact, he says earlier that true religion is to I forgot the exact wording. It's chapter one is to uh, uh, help the orphan and uh, the widow and that kind of thing. So that's what he's talking about. Save uh, those kind of people from temporal ruin as well as save yourself from temporal destruction. Okay, so along those lines, and just before we transition into Calvinism, um, if you all have questions, save those questions for the end. You can either type it in or you can call in or you can join the live chat. But um, what, we'll do our best to get to those questions. I know we've got one that has already come in, but I, I do want to ask as it's related to faith and works um, and believing, it, when it says that the devils believe and they tremble, what would be the difference there if that's in the same category of a relationship of faith to works compared to the devil's belief in faith uh, and, and, and works, if that's even a part of the conversation? Oh, it definitely is. Uh, James is addressing an objector, uh, a person who doesn't feel that a walk of faith is necessary in order to go to, uh, to be saved from these temporal consequences. And James's response is, that's ridiculous. You're saying all you have to do is believe in God as kind of an intellectual acceptance of the Shema, the Lord our God is one, if, that, if he's a Jew. Uh, but that won't do you any good at all for escaping the kind of salvation, uh, the, the kind of danger that James is talking about, namely uh, the sin unto death or spiritual ruin or a dishonorable uh, report at the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, so he, uh, see, I guess I've said it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So it would be the interlocutor. The interlocutor, I think, typically would, would yeah, be drawn back to. So the James person. says, look, that kind of faith means nothing. The demons believe that, G, that, uh, there's, that God is God. They believe in one God. It takes a lot more than that. It takes a walk of faith to get out of this stuff, not just a one time belief in a, that there is a God. Yeah. So he's just saying, this is, so James says, you foolish man. 
Okay, so when we when we when we're describing the difference between the partner paradigm, free grace theology, and uh, say Calvinism, Calvinism uh, is going to draw strong distinctions in in saying that if you don't have these works, that you were never saved to begin with. Um, but if you were if you were to just explain to somebody the way that you explain to somebody what the partner paradigm or free grace theology is, how would you describe Calvinism to somebody? Um, that may be new to theology? Well, briefly, uh, it means, well, let's just use TULIP again, uh, total depravity. T for total depravity. That means that a non-believer is completely unable to choose God. Uh, Free grace says that's baloney. All people can yeah. Uh, choose God if they want. <laughs> Secondly, they believe in uh, un, uh, unconditional election. In other words, in eternity past, and God, uh, you know, Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology is pretty strong on this. Yeah. God predetermined that some would burn in the lake of fire forever and some would go to heaven. And then he created them knowing that some would go to heaven, billions as a matter of fact. It is a totally grotesque, blasphemous view of God, in my view. Thirdly, they believe in limited atonement. See, you you trace the logic of this predestination out to its logical conclusion, as some of Calvin's followers did, in contradiction to Calvin, by the way. And you conclude that Christ died only for the elect. So when it says Christ died for the sins, or Christ is the propitiation for the sins of the world in 1 John 2, well, that's the world of the elect, not everybody. Now, Calvin believed that Christ died for everybody without exception. They departed from Calvin in this. Right. Calvin believed in unlimited atonement, yeah. where the reform experimental predestination uh, group believes in limited atonement. He only died for those he intended, who, whom he had elected to save. And then finally, Calvinism uh, believes that uh, a true Christian will always persevere in a life of good works to the final hour. Now, this, of course, eliminates any possibility of true assurance. Even John MacArthur admitted on the radio, he's only 99% he's saved. John Piper, a beloved, fantastic Christian man uh, acknowledged that his greatest fear is that when he gets to the judgment seat of Christ, he'll find out that he's not saved because his life doesn't stack up yeah. because he may or may not persevere in a good life in, in, a, in works to the end of life. He, he, I've got him on a sermon saying this stuff to a Sunday morning uh, church. So true um Assurance is impossible because you don't know that you'll persevere to the end until the end. So anyway, those are the basic uh, outlines of Calvinism. That's more than that, but I'm reducing it to the popular acronym. Yeah. Uh, so so let's look into it a little closer. I, I think that in some of those points that, that you've brought up and the examples of, of things that Calvinists say, um, as it's related to um, what Calvinism would be in comparison to free grace. I, I think the, the biggest distinction and something we've already mentioned would be lordship salvation. Um, and, and I think that, that ultimately where it becomes really dangerous is where you're looking for your assurance of your salvation. 
is it is it in what you're doing or is it in what Christ has already done for us? And I think those would be the two categories that would, would really um, differentiate free grace theology from Calvinism. Uh, and you've, you've already talked about that in, um, in some of these, these, these guys who would, would be big names within Calvinism and not knowing whether or not when they um, come to the judgment that they'll make it into heaven because they don't know if their works um, are, are reflective enough or good enough um, to be rewarded with heaven. So, okay, let's start with free grace, uh, or let's start with lordship salvation. Uh, the, the most popular quote that you get within lordship salvation is the idea that if Jesus is not lord of all, then he's not lord at all. And in your book, Final Destiny, uh, you've written these words. Another common error of the experimentalist is to confuse the idea of lordship as a condition for salvation with perseverance and holiness. Some seem to think they would only solve the problem of carnality in our churches by teaching, one, that obedience is part of saving faith, and two, that in order to be saved, a person must turn from all known sin and submit himself to the lordship of Christ. But it should be obvious that, even if this is granted, which it is not, the act of submitting to the lordship of Christ at the point of saving faith in no way guarantees that a person will continue to submit to the lordship of Christ throughout the rest of his life. Thus, books have been written to eliminate the problem of dead Christianity by front-loading the gospel with lordship salvation are not only wrong biblically, biblically but logically they prove no answer at all. Uh, only perseverance and godliness will solve the problem, not a decision at a point in time. Therefore, the, the issue of lordship salvation is logically irrelevant to the whole discussion. So I, I guess my question to you is, um, what is the? You've already defined what the experimentalist is, and the idea that they've got to experiment with the relationship of their works to faith and saving faith, and and all of those things. Um, but but uh, if you could could expand that idea of where they've erred um, in confusing lord lordship, salvation, and perseverance and holiness with salvation, where do you see the distinction? Where's the line? Where are they crossing the line as it's related there? Well, it's a good question. Uh, I remember, I don't know how many years ago, I, I try to read through the Bible once a year. And I made out a plan on one particular year to look for every place in the Bible where you had true Christians, as far as the data recorded in Scripture, you would conclude they were born again, who failed, who either apostatized, or who ended life like Solomon did, for example, fornicating with a thousand foreign women and worshiping Baals. Uh, you have Saul as another example. And I wrote up all of my research in Final Destiny. And my conclusion is the reform view of this is not even possibly true biblically. There are so many illustrations of true, genuine Christians who didn't make it or who failed uh, in their Christian walk that uh, their, their whole system, which depends upon this idea that all true Christians will persevere in holiness, is simply not justified by Scripture. You know, you've got Saul, you've got Solomon, you've got the community leaders back there in Exodus uh, who were uh, born again. You've got 
the book of First uh, Corinthians, where he addresses these people as born again believers, and yet for at least three or four years they've been full of envy, jealousy. Uh, one of them is fornicating with his mother-in-law. Uh, they're taking one another into court. They're using spiritual gifts selfishly. They're carnal Christians, and they're failing. Uh, of course, Solomon is a, is a particularly a big uh, example. If you go through the lives of all the kings of Israel, which I did, you can find a number of them that were genuinely born again. It says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but then he finished as a complete catastrophe. Uh, you've got Jesus saying in the Sermon on the Mount that believers can become saltless and they're of no more value than something thrown out and on, you walk over it like dung. They're just, they're not, they're not even worth dung. I mean, Jesus says this about, about true Christians. Uh, I could go on and on, but the point, well, in, in John, he, he, uh, in say John chapter two, Jesus talks about people, uh, when the Lord comes, believers, uh, little children, brothers, who will draw back in shame yeah. at the Lord's coming. In uh, 1 Corinthians 3.15, you have Paul saying, yeah, these carnal Christians will be saved, but it'll be as through fire. Yeah. But they will be yeah. saved. But they're going to experience a negative assessment of their lives at the judgment seat of Christ. Uh Paul talks in 1 Thessalonians 5 about Christians who sleep, which is uh, the term used here for uh, in, uh, dullness, word alert, who didn't pay attention. Nevertheless, Paul says, they'll be gathered together with him. Yeah. So there's such abundant evidence uh, that lordship salvation is utterly irrelevant to the question. Uh, because the real question is not lordship salvation, but what would you do with your Christianity afterwards? And free grace people believe that as soon as you uh, trust in Christ, that you're, uh, you, you get a new nature, which has new inclinations, which wants to obey, and you now have the ability to obey. And furthermore, you have the possibility of victory over sin, according to Romans 6. Sin will not have dominion over you. So the free grace people argue, if uh, you don't have to do what you don't want to do, you don't do it normally. <laughs> but some do. Yeah. And they will face accountability. Free grace is grace with accountability. We're just saying that the accountability is not the threat of eternal damnation which is a horrible way to live. Can you imagine your son coming to you saying, uh, Dad, am I really your son? And you say, well, son, it all depends on whether you obey me. Well, Dad, sometimes I, I don't obey you. Well, son, you might not be my son. Yeah. I mean, that's what they're saying. Yeah. And yeah. they're exhorting people based on, what is it, Second Corinthians uh, 10, I think. I may be wrong on that to examine yourself, to see if you're in the faith. You're supposed to do that all your life. But in the faith doesn't mean be a Christian. It means in the faith way of life. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I probably said too much already. but <laughs> No, you're good. No, you're good. Um, and so I, I just don't think that lordship has anything to do with becoming a Christian. Because becoming a Christian 
is free, and John says it's without cost, where the reform wanted to make it cost everything. And they cite the uh, rich young ruler. Right. Okay, so so, okay, so what we're talking about right now, guys, is is going to be broken down uh, even further as it's related to <clears throat> the works of the Christian and the rewards of the Christian at the judgment. I think that this is something that needs a lot more conversation, uh, but this is this is one area that really breaks apart the differences between Calvinism and free grace theology and the partner paradigm. Uh, some of those passages are, are going to be really difficult. Some that that I think about that I still can't wrap my head around that hopefully I'll get some clarity today in talking to Jody, so, um, which is good. But, but let's, let's stick on Lordship Salvation just for a, a minute. And I want to get your questions in as well. I know we've still got some more coming in, but as it's related to Lordship Salvation, you, you write that calling on and confessing in the name of the Lord are synonymous, and only those who have called can confess being that they are already justified. And you go on to say, there's no example that you can find anywhere in Scripture where calling upon the name of the Lord has anything to do with calling upon Him for personal salvation in a soteriological sense. In every instance, it is an act of worship, a request for assistance, or a description of those who already possess soteriological justification and who trust, worship, and obey Yahweh only. The fact that Paul uses this extremely common, well-defined expression from, from the Old Testament when he speaks of calling on the name of the Lord should be decisive in determining the meaning of salvation in Romans 10.13 and therefore in verse 1. So I, I think that one of the things to consider would be, would be understanding the difference between fellowship and sonship, uh, discipleship and sonship. And when it, it's like it's like it's like confusing justification with sanctification. If if we blend the two, you no longer have a distinction between the two. Um, so it essentially what what it would be is a blending of works and grace for salvation, one way or the other. But my question, I guess, is uh, how would what what you just said is relating to calling on, upon the name of the Lord and confessing in the name of the Lord? How's that related to uh, lordship salvation? And, um, and salvation itself. Where would you go with that side of the conversation? Well, those from a reform perspective, when they read that passage, uh, let's go look, let me look at, look, uh, let me just read it here. Uh, it's Romans 10. Um, Verse uh, 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all those who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, this, the question is, what, is what, what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? And in Romans 10, what does it mean to be saved? Yes. The yes. salvation in Romans 10 is pretty well defined for us in verses in chapter 9. And it refers to Israel's temporal deliverance from national catastrophe. So if the nation will call upon the Lord for help, 
he'll deliver them from 70 AD, that catastrophe that's coming down uh, about 40 years later. And of course, for an individual within the nation who calls upon the Lord, uh, the, that phrase is clearly defined in the Old Testament. Anybody can look this up in a concordance, look up that phrase throughout the Old Testament. It never has any connection with calling upon the Lord for salvation from hell. It always means to call upon him for help. In some passages, it simply means to worship the Lord. So, you're caught, and furthermore, this is something only a believer can do. Therefore, it could have nothing to do with personal salvation from eternal hell. That's proved in verse 14. How then shall we call upon him whom they've not believed? In other words, you can't call upon him if you haven't already believed. So this is addressed to true believers. And how shall you believe in him you've not heard? Well, you can't believe unless you hear. So they've heard. And how uh, shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? <laughs> Yep. So there's a sequence, a chronological sequence there. And it starts with the preacher being sent, then him giving the message, and then people believing it. And then after they believe it, then they can call upon the Lord. So this is something only believers in Christ can do. And that's the same way it's used throughout the Old Testament. That's good. Therefore, that's good. it has nothing to do with calling upon him for personal salvation from damnation. Okay. So... Okay. Um, now, this is where we're going to get a little bit deeper, guys, I think, when it comes to some of these problem texts. Uh, and, and hopefully this is where, I'm, I, where I was talking about having some confusion myself on, on how this relates to the partner paradigm and rewards. Because I was having a conversation with, with my wife's uh, grand, grandfather a while back, and, and we were talking about Matthew 25. We were talking about Mark 8, and I'm like, man, Bill, it seems like... It seems like this is a reference to a follower, a believer in Christ, and they're coming before the judgment, and they're they it's it's a reference to them when it comes to weeping and gnashing of teeth and being cast into outer darkness. I'm like, if that's what it's talking about, which is the way that I'm seeing it, I don't know what to do with that. I mean, how does a Christian at the judgment end up in outer darkness? How does a Christian? at the judgment end up naked? How does a Christian at the judgment end up with nothing? Is this about a Christian? And, and where does this conversation go as it's, it's related? Um, and I still don't, I still haven't got my mind settled on where I'm at with this. So hopefully we can get it uh, cleared up or at least point me in the direction that I can, I can run with it. I know you've written a lot about it in Mark 8 and, and Matthew 22 and 25. Um, but these are some problem passages that I, I would have, and I'd, I'd, I consider myself free grace. But in, in Mark eight twelve, it says, But the children of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in Matthew twenty two thirteen, he says, then, the, then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in Matthew twenty five thirty, it says, and cast you, the unprofitable servant, into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So I, I guess to start is kind of, um, am I on the right track? Is this, is this a reference to 
someone who is a believer and a servant of Christ, or is this a, a, a reference to someone who is an unbeliever and still considered a servant of Christ, like, say, Nebuchadnezzar? Where would you go with kind of setting the groundwork for for where we're at here um, in this side of the conversation? Well, these are really good questions, and there's no question that um, this is a very, very difficult passage uh, for people who espouse the free grace viewpoint, as I do, to explain. And it was a big barrier to me for many, many years. A couple of points that might be helpful here. Um, in Matthew 8, when he talks about the sons of God being cast out, uh, the term sons of God uh, could mean non-believers or people who have just professed faith in Christ but aren't really saved, and that would solve that problem. Or they could be true believers who are cast into the darkness outside. Now we know, I think we do, that the sons of God in Matthew are true believers. Matthew says so. Jesus says so in Matthew 13, uh, 38, where he says they are the wheat, not the tares. So now we have a problem that says the sons of God in Matthew 8 can be tossed into the darkness outside, which many understandably think means final damnation. A couple of points here. Probably it's worth pointing out that the term cast out, uh, ekbalo, uh, is loaded with violence and negativity. Um, but it's also used throughout the New Testament of laborers being cast out into the harvest, ekbalo. Uh, he, he brings them out. He leads them out. Or the Lord Jesus was cast out into the uh, desert by, by Satan. Well, he was led out. In fact, uh, that's how a lot of the, uh, the translations. So in other words, it helps a little to reduce the negativity and the sound of that. Because the other, uh, well, okay. Um, okay, in Mark 143, uh, you know, this where this leper was healed. Jesus sternly warned him immediately, immediately, immediately uh, sent him away, ekbalo. Because he didn't cast him out. So that's the first point. But then let's look at the term, the darkness outside, because it's often communicated or associated with final damnation. And so is that related phrase, uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think it's used seven times. And the phrase uh, darkness outside is used three times. So what does it refer to? Well, my suggestion is, and I picked this up from a number of commentaries, but uh, banquets in the Middle East were held at night. And like in Matthew 
uh, 22 and then 25, we're talking about the wedding feast of the Lamb in the New Jerusalem during the tribulation. Some people are admitted, the foolish virgins were not. Uh, instead, they were sent to the darkness outside. Now, there is a minor point of Greek grammar here that may help a little bit. The word, the word order says the darkness, the outside. In other words, it's, it's emphatic. This is a darkness outside of a particular location. And the location in the context is this festive celebration, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So what we're looking at here is this is not the farthest darkness, like some translations render it. It's simply, that is the lake of fire. It's simply saying they're cast outside the brilliant lit up celebration within the wedding banquet. Uh, so when they call it, you know, outermost darkness, uh, they're ignoring the context, which is talking about not being cast out of heaven or cast into hell. It's talking about being removed from the celebration where it's all lit up and joyous and rejoicing. Uh, the other issue related to that uh, is that, okay, it's a, it's lit up. Uh, uh, let me just leave it there. Okay. <laughs> I'm getting, uh, go ahead and let's follow the, the question line a little bit further if you'd like. Okay, so um, it, it seems like uh, when you see passages like this, you're going to have um, one, uh, one, one group that's going to see um, this judgment that would result in somebody being cast into outer darkness, that this is, this is a reference to someone who was never saved um, on one side. Now, the other side is going to say, well, maybe this person was a servant. They were a follower of Christ. They believed in Christ at one time. And they've come to the place in their life where they've stopped believing. They die. They end up at the judgment. Now they're cast out. This casting out would be a reference to being cast out of the kingdom. And uh, therefore ending up in outer darkness is, is a reference to not just having no role um, in the kingdom, but a reference to having no salvation or presence with Christ into eternity. So you would end up essentially... Um, without Christ, without a role in the kingdom, and uh, suffer the same fate that ends up in the lake of fire as those who have never believed. So, um, But it seems like the, the partner paradigm is drawing a distinction, saying that the rewards of the Christian is going to be conditional upon service, uh, upon the attitude of the heart of the Christian towards what God has called them to do and what they have, they have done um, as it's related to the kingdom. So, I, but it, it and, and I've heard some people who have drawn the distinction that it's not just, it, it, it could be more specific than, um, well, the overarching theme of, well, here's the kingdom, you're, you're either in or out. And it seems like maybe you're drawing the distinction even, even closer, saying, well, yeah, you're right, it's not just a reference to kingdom being in or out, but it would be a reference to the marriage of the Lamb. So it, how does that relate to a Christian? I mean, if we're to be wed to Christ, how can we be out of out of out of the wedding, so to speak. Well, yeah, that's a good question, Josh. In Revelation 19, it, it's pretty clear that the reason they're these Christians are cast out of the celebration is because they don't have the proper wedding garments. And those wedding garments are defined in that chapter as the righteous acts of the saints. 
So a Christian who lives a carnal life and never repents, he simply will be, yeah, he's part of the bride of Christ, but he won't be able to celebrate with the other members of the bride at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Now there's another wedding, there's another feast talked about in, uh, see what that's, Isaiah 25. Yeah. And uh, it's in, see, that's Matthew 13. It's the messianic banquet that inaugurates the millennial kingdom. And at that banquet, um, the, the carnal believers from all time will be excluded from that banquet. They will not participate in the joy when Abraham and Isaac and all the Old Testament saints gather to celebrate the inauguration of the millennium and the fulfillment of God's covenants to Israel. Um, in fact, they, like those outside the wedding feast in uh, Matthew 25, the foolish virgins, for example, uh, will experience weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those are just metaphors for profound regret. In other words, when a person realizes that his total life is added up to close to nothing, he's saved through fire, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and he realizes how he's wasted his life, uh, and he, he sees the real consequences, he weeps. God weeps. That doesn't mean he's in hell. And uh, in fact, it even says in places, I know these are anthropomorphisms, that God regrets what he did. So, um, and I guess that's that basically says it. Those are just metaphors, not for burning in hell, mm -hmm. but for uh, exclusion and negative assessment of life at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, these rewards in the kingdom that this person forfeits are threefold. Uh, one is greater intimacy with Christ. I, I remember I spent an afternoon one day going through all the rewards mentioned in the Bible. And I found I could categorize them with three topics. One was greater intimacy. There apparently is a correlation between the intimacy we know with Christ here on earth and the degree of intimacy we will have with him in the eternal state. Secondly, there's honor. And this is passages like, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the second thing they forfeit. The third thing they forfeit is opportunities for service. Their opportunities to serve the king throughout eternity are reduced. Uh, Jesus talked about it in that parable about some get 10 cities, some get five, some get what two, and some get none or whatever. And uh, those are, he's not talking about being the mayor of a city. These are metaphors for opportunities to serve. So those are the three things, uh, opportunities for service, eternal honor, and um, what was the first one? Oh, greater intimacy. Yeah. Uh, and uh, those are three things a person risks when he le le leads a carnal life. In other words, we're saying that free grace does have accountability. It's not go down to the front, check a box, and then live in a way you want. 
if you check that box and if you really believe, in other words, you had a faith as a conviction of things hoped for. It's not just simply intellectual ascents. And you were consciously trusting Christ for the forgiveness of sins. You're born again. And, and if you really did that, uh, even if you don't persevere to the end in good works, Jesus says, I will lose none of them. Okay, so let's talk about that and see uh, where that side of the conversation goes as it's related to, um, say, John 15 or Matthew 5. In John 15, you see references to those abiding in Christ. And if, if they don't abide in Christ, it seems that he's cast forth as a branch. He's withered. Men gather him and they cast him into the fire and they're burned. It seems like whatever category you fall into, Christians and uh, non-Christians or, or believers and non-believers all end up going through a fire. And, and ultimately, the, the Christian's works, it seems to me, can burn up. The, the non-believer going through the fire is either going to suffer, uh, is, gonna, is going to suffer damnation in the sense of uh, burning in the fire along with the works as opposed to the Christian who's saved by the fire while his works can burn up. But how does that relate to John 15 or Matthew 5 um, where it talks about this branch being cast into the fire and, and burned uh, in Matthew 5 where it says that you've heard him say of old time that you, um, thou shalt not commit adultery. But he says unto you, whosoever looks on a woman to lust after has committed adultery already in his heart. But he talks about, uh, he goes on to talk about the profitability of you know, your eye offending you and plucking it out or your hand offending you and cutting it off and then and then makes a reference to entrance into the kingdom withered and maimed um, rather than being cast into hell. So are there are there two different categories of being cast off and cast into hell and burned with the fire here of a believer and a non-believer? Where would you go with that? I might have thrown too much in there for that question, but... Well, yeah, we, we, we need another 90 minutes. Okay. okay. <laughs> You've raised a number of issues, but I'll, I'll give the elevator speech, although uh, it's, it takes more than that. First of all, there's yeah. two fires in eternity future. One is the lake of fire. One is uh, the fire at the judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, where it's a metaphor for burning up all the dead works. So it's not automatic that every time you see a fire in the future that it's hell because there's this well-established other one. Uh, secondly, uh, that passage in Matthew 5 uh, raises an interesting question about what, is, what does it mean to enter the kingdom? Now, if it means like what it means in John 3.16, uh, that unless you're born again, you won't enter the kingdom of God, then that's soteriology, that's salvation from damnation. But the phrase enter the kingdom, uh, I think it's used 11 times. Uh, I may be wrong on that, I can't remember. Uh, it never means that in the other passages. It means to enter into a kingdom way of life. And in fact, in Matthew chapter five, verse 19, Jesus, well, let's say, look at 20. He says, unless your righteousness, and that means ethical conduct of behavior, exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom. But in verse 19, the preceding verse, he says, 
those who disobey the least of these commandments and teach others to do the same will be least in the kingdom. In other words, they don't have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, but they're saved. So enter the kingdom obviously doesn't mean go to heaven when you die. It means what it means in many places in the New Testament and what the context of the Sermon on the Mount demands. I say it demands it because it's addressed to true believers to call them to live a kingdom way of life. And Jesus himself defines that in the following verses after he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes of Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he defines that righteousness as internal heart, not the letter of the law, but the spirit of it. He says, if you've ever uh, been angry with your brother, you've already committed murder. I remember I was talking to a guy on an airplane once who told me that uh, you get to heaven by good works. And I said, well, how good do you have to be? And he thought for a moment and he said, well, I think you'd have to get a 94. <laughs> And uh, so I said, well, let's see what Jesus says. So I read the passage. You've ever lost on a woman. You've already committed adultery and you're subject to judgment. How about you? Well, yeah, who hasn't? The point is that Jesus is not talking about entrance into the kingdom in a soteriological sense. The whole Sermon on the Mount begs us to see this as a discourse on discipleship, which like uh, R.T. France calls it in his excellent commentary on Matthew. It's calling true believers to walk out the kingdom life. So that's Matthew 5. Now, what was the other one you brought uh, John, up? John 15. Oh, yeah, John 15. Okay. Uh, Jesus says, I'm the true vine. My father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. So he's talking about true believers. These are branches in Christ. Mm -hmm. Paul uses that term 163 times in the New Testament. Uh, it's an organic connection. Any branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. Now, the word take away, Iro, is used five times in the Gospel of John is lift up. He's talking to his disciples uh, on the Mount of Olives as and he's telling them that he's going to get crucified, betrayed, and they're going to be left alone. He's not saying, look, if you guys don't stick with me after this, you're going to hell. Yeah. He's saying that fruit or, or believers that are not bearing fruit, he lifts them up to encourage them. Uh, I remember in, in Grudem's book, he goes to town on this, saying there's nothing here about lifting up. And he, he knows nothing in all of uh, first century, uh, what do you call it, uh, discussions about plants or vineyards. Yeah. Well, he, yeah. It is there. In my book, I document many places where the vine dresser uh, trains the vine. He, he takes it to the, the pole and starts wrapping it around, and then the vine will automatically lift itself up. And when it does, it bears more fruit. 
So this is a common uh, agricultural practice. So, in fact, he even says, you are, verse 3, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. He says, you guys are already believers. Then he says, abide in me and I in you. If you don't do that, you won't bear fruit. So now he's talking about the abiding relationship. The in Christ relationship is positional. That relates to our standing. The abiding relationship refers to our state, our experience. And we either continue to abide in intimate fellowship or we don't. We abide in fellowship. Then, uh, we will, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him. In other words, this intimate interpersonal connection, uh, he bears much fruit. Uh, if anyone, then there's the problem verse. If anyone does not abide in me, he's saying, look, if you don't persevere in a walk of faith to the end of life, if you don't continue to maintain your intimate connection with me by abiding, which just means to remain in fellowship, if you don't do that, you'll be away as a branch and it dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire at the judgment seat of Christ. And they are burned. It's not talking about the lake of fire. It's just talking about the consequence that carnal believers will feel when, like in 1 John 2, uh, they draw back in shame at the judgment seat of Christ. Or 2 Corinthians 5.10, where we're told that we will be rewarded good and bad for the things we have done in this life. But he's talking to true believers now, because Jesus knows that these are true believers, he says they're in him and they're his own disciples, he wouldn't threaten them with a destiny he knows would never happen to them. He'd be lying to them because he knows that they can't be thrown into the lake of fire. So why would he threaten them and use that kind of a motivation on a night where his disciples need encouragement, not condemnation? That's John 15 in my view. Okay, that's good. There's okay. a lot there. Um, I Okay, so for those of you who are calling in and doing the video chat right now, Eli, I know you tried to call in on the video chat. Um, we're going to get to questions. I want to make sure that we, we give it just a second to finish up uh, and wrap up our conversation before we turn it to the audience for questions, um, which I'll tell you. I'll let you know when to call in. But Eli, it's uh, it's nothing against you. I would have kept you on, but my bandwidth... <laughs> I need one of those computers that's like... Ten thousand, twelve thousand dollars that can handle all of, all of this at once, all the programs to to be able to not disturb and cause audio distortion and those kinds of things. But I'm dealing with what I've got, so um, give me just a minute and you can call back in for the video chat. We'll get you on with Jody, and same for you, Jacob. I know you called in earlier as well, um, but I do want to wrap our conversation up with kind of this point here, Jody, and give you a chance to kind of tie it together, and then we'll get to uh, some of the questions that are coming in. So uh, we're, it seems like to me we've got a, essentially three different categories when it comes to the judgment. You've got some, some people who would split it up into categories of apostates versus heretics versus carnal Christians. And uh, it, you would see that in some of the warning passages that we've talked about, like Romans 9, 1 Corinthians 16, Galatians 1, Hebrews 4, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10. 
John 15, Matthew 5, and you've talked about John 15, Matthew 5, you've talked about Mark 8, and Matthew 25. So there's there's a lot more to the conversation uh, to really do the conversation justice. I think essentially what we've done is taken a bird's eye view and uh, uh, of any of these issues between Calvinism, free grace, some, some of the, the problems that may uh, arise when you're confronted with, hey, we, with free grace theology, um, like, like these, these passages. So anyways, w- what I'm trying to say is, um, would you say, kind of to sum these, these problem passages up, would you say that this would be addressed to true believers who are in danger of apostasy and final uh, damnation, or are they addressed to those who have merely professed faith in Christ, but who have demonstrated by their character and behavior that their professions were not genuine, and that they too are on the highway to final destination unless they repent and examine their foundation? Maybe you can answer that question, and then guys, Jacob, why don't you call in first, and then Eli, I'll have you uh, join on the video call, and we'll turn it over to you all in the audience. My own opinion, after looking at all the, and I've looked at all these warning passages, is that they are addressed to true believers. Uh, just to comment very briefly on things we've already talked about, in Hebrews 6, for example, those addressed are said to have been enlightened, which is a standard word. You can look it up in a concordance for having come to a saving knowledge of Christ, and they have tasted of the heavenly gift um, and the word of God. I know John MacArthur says, well, they only tasted it. They sampled it. They didn't really imbibe it. But earlier, Jesus uses, or the writer of the Hebrews uses the same word for Jesus tasted death for all of us. He's not talking about a sample. That metaphor for taste is referring to a full um, experience of. So those are believers that are being addressed with that warning that they can fall away. It couldn't be a warning that they'd fall away from salvation because the Bible tells us that no man can fall away from salvation. Jesus says in John, what is it, about 630 or 639, 40, Uh, that anyone who believes in him will be raised on the last day, and I will lose none of them. So the writer of the Hebrews wouldn't be warning them about a destiny he knows will never happen to them. He'd be lying. John 15, uh, I've noted that these are believers because they have the possibility of abiding in fellowship with him, and because they are in Christ. So the prima facie obvious answer or perspective is on that warning. Those two are addressed to true believers. Of course, we know they are. They're his disciples. Uh, Right after the banquet, they cross the Kidron Valley and they're up on the Mount of Olives now. And he breaks the news that he's going to, you know, he's going to be crucified. So those are just two examples. We did talk about Matthew 8, where those cast out are the wheat true believers. And because Jesus said he'll lose none of them in John 6, he couldn't be threatening them with hell because he'd be lying to them. Those are typical passages and very brief responses. I don't know if that helps helps or not. 
No, that's good. I really appreciate yeah. that, guys. That's uh, I think that's a good place to kind of wrap up our conversation today. Um, as far as the, we've covered a, a wide range of, of areas. We've talked about Calvinism. We've talked about free grace theology, and we've even gone into some of the problem passages as it's related to rewards for Christians uh, versus kind of the damnation of a, of a non-believer and that side of the conversation. So thank you for sticking with us. We've got, looks like we've got about 19 or 20 people on right now. So we're going to cut that to you all. And we've got a call who's come in uh, on the text on, on the call line, which I need to put that up. If you want to call in with a question, you can do that. That should be on your screen now. And that number is 816-866-0025. Uh, but Jody, we've got a call in from Jacob. So Jacob, you're on the air, and whenever you're ready, go ahead and, and uh, hit us with your question, and, and we'll get a response. Hey, guys. I appreciate the topic. Um, I think it's very important in this day and age uh, to go through these issues and things figured out. Um, I... I've been listening for the last few minutes. I heard a few things, and it, it caused me to have a question about John 15. Uh, There's a few statements. One thing was um, abiding simply means to remain in fellowship. Um, I heard that the, the the casting away in John 15, being taken away, is simply the vine dresser. Um, the phrase true believers, I did agree that John 15 is speaking to true believers. Uh, I heard the phrase carnal believers, and so I guess my question is, um, I see a distinction between the vine dresser is specifically saying, or this is the father, right? So he's, he's taking away the ones who don't abide, but he's pruning those who do abide, who will bear more fruit. And when it, when it says abide, I mean, John uses that phrase over and over. And in verse 10 of John 15, Jesus says how to abide, which is keeping his commandments. Which, when he sums up the commandments in another place, I think it's in Matthew 5, uh, it is, you know, loving God and loving neighbor, it sums up the entire law. And so I think it needs to be talked about what, what actually does abiding mean. So that would be one question. Another question is, why is there no distinction shown between uh, those who abide and don't abide, because that seems very clear to me. And then, how do we know that the fire is not hell? Because I don't see anything that specifically says. I just see assumptions that it's not hell. But uh, Jesus is warning his saved apostles. And um, it seems very clear to me. And the only other place where I see um, a gathering and a casting is when the angels do it. And that is uh, with the reapers, the angels, and they cast it into the fire. I don't think that. I don't think that some type of rewards purification. So okay. I, I do see people falling away and losing, quote unquote, losing salvation uh, in John 15. So, and, and then I have, I don't know if you guys, how much time you have, but um, well, let's, I think Romans Romans 11 should be considered as well. Let's start so, with that. Um, let's start with that. We've got kind of a. Uh, two-part question here, Jody. Um, if if you want to uh, take kind of take it where he's at, it seems like he's he's drawn a distinction from the way that I understand it. That one, uh, how do we understand uh, abiding in? Because um, abiding, it seems that you're saying is is in in reference to fellowship, um, and he's he's saying, well, it, there could be some who are not abiding, uh, but it, at one point were, and they're they're being cast into the fire. That could be a reference to hell, but um, Jacob, is is that is that kind of a good summary for the, that two, that part of the two part question? 
Um, uh, it's pretty good. Uh, can I rephrase it? Or yeah, that'd be maybe great. Add something because yeah. the apostles are the ones he's speaking to. So that's the primary context. So by extension, applies to us, and we already know they're saved. It says right there they're already clean by the, the word that I've spoken to you. So it's a warning. Clearly, it's a warning. But he's he's speaking to, you know, eleven saved apostles, and he says, "Abide in me. If you don't, here's the consequence." That's the context, and it needs to be understood. I think uh, I, okay. I don't see any reason to change that. Um, and I don't see any reason to and the idea of carnal believer because with these vegetative met- uh, metaphors, Jesus said a good tree cannot bear thorns and a thorn bush cannot bear good fruit. So I don't see fruit as the, the test of a true believer. I see the lack of thorns as the test of a true believer. Okay, Jody, so where, just... where, where would you go with answering that question um, as it's related to... Um, abiding in uh, the disciples being believers and uh, go from there. So Jody, I'll just turn it over to you. Okay. Jacob, you're a good thinker. Thanks for bringing this stuff up. Um, Let me start with what Jesus said a little earlier in the gospel of John in chapter six, verse 39. He says, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but will raise it up on the last day. So he says there that he will never lose one of his children that have come to him. They're born again and justified. Salvation cannot be lost. Therefore, when we come to John 15, he can't be saying the opposite. That people who are in him, who have been cleansed and are clean, he can't be saying, oh, well, you can be lost. And contrary to what I just said in John 6. And because we know that there are two fires in eternity future, there's no reason to assume in this context, unless you had a theological agenda to support, that this must refer to hell, final damnation. And the the other question you've raised um, is what does abide mean? Now, I'm not sure what you're thinking it could mean, but it's something that God does. Uh, If you abide in me and I, my words abide in you. Abide in me and I in you. Now, there's there's something reciprocal going on here that God abides and the believer abides. Prima facie, that looks to me like fellowship. They have elsewhere, abiding is connected with a common purpose. Uh, You know, I looked up all the references to Menno in the New Testament that might you know, have a similar context. And uh, it's certainly arguable in my view that when I did that, that this this abiding relationship is the relationship of a walk of faith, of maintaining intimacy, of perseverance in faith to the end of life. And uh, therefore it has, you know, it's, and it is, we know in the context, it's addressed to true Christians. So you wouldn't be asking them to become Christians. You'd be asking them to 
you know, maintain close fellowship. At least that's how it seems to me. Now, did I answer your question? Is that helpful at all? Um, well, I appreciate the answer. I, I mean, I don't know if I get a rebuttal or not, but um, I noticed that when you quoted that, you know, of these, I, I lose, none of them, lose none of them, talking about how all of those that are granted to come to Jesus by the Father, you know, he'll lose none of them. But I noticed that the promises are all conditional upon something. So those who have heard and learned, they come to Jesus. Uh, those who follow Jesus, right? My sheep hear my voice and they know me and they follow me. So every promise is based on a condition. And I would argue that if that condition is not being met, then that promise doesn't apply. And so if you're taking that one verse and using that as your lens to look at the morning, I think it's very dangerous because the warnings are there for a reason on the straight and narrow path. And if we lose that fear of God, then we will fall away. Okay, so it seems like to me, Jody, what Jacob is saying is the abiding would be conditional on keeping the commandments. And he, he said earlier that keeping the commandments would be the greatest of those loving your neighbor as yourself and and uh, loving, God. loving God. So um, he, he seems to be drawing the connection that there is, there is a condition on abiding in Christ and Christ keeping us in him as as uh keeping the commandments so it, is that where well, he doesn't say that in john 6 39 there's no conditions there's a distinction between in my mind between the mosaic law and the law of christ i don't think we're trying to be saved by some law i still believe that we're saved by grace i believe it's a gift i believe it's a free gift but i also see that if we don't bear fruit that jesus is going to cut us off of himself or the father is going to cut us off of jesus and so um, you know, when we see this promise of either height nor depth nor any other thing separated from the love of God, well, or, or any other created thing, what I see is that the Father is not a created thing, and He's the one that separates us from the Father eventually. Sorry, Jesus eventually. Okay, I think I think that's a good place to wrap it up. We're kind of um, getting some background feedback as well, but I think we've got the question um, and the concept. So, Jody, I'll turn it over to you. And I know, Shannon, you were going to call in on the link. Shannon and Eli will get you on on the video. If you want to hit that link, now would be the time to do that. And we'll get you in with Jody on the video call as well. So thank you for calling in, Jacob. And I'll turn it over to you, Jody. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I was going to, a lot of this, maybe, I, I didn't get a chance to ask where Jacob's coming from. It's possible that he was understanding that uh, salvation can be lost. In other words, he has a, uh, a plausible argument, but I'm coming from the standpoint, not just from John 6, like he seemed to, well, it's because that's all I mentioned, but I'm coming from the standpoint that salvation cannot be lost, but for sure, if that's where Jacob was coming from, uh, we'll probably have to leave it on the table. Um, okay, I, I think I've got my mic on. Let me let me see. I know there's, and, and that's a good place for the conversation to go, but it looks like we've got another question coming in with Eli. Eli has joined the video chat, so if you guys want to do that, you can. You might you might wait until I, I get done with uh, one video chat to call in just because uh, I, I don't have enough uh, <laughs> computer power to, to get multiple guests on at once, so... 
Um, let me get your, let me get get your, your question in. It looks like you're good. So Eli, whenever you're ready, um, you you can talk. To you. Yeah. Thanks for hosting me. Absolutely. And hi, Jody. We have communicated in the past. Hi. If you remember me. <laughs> hi. Um, oh, so Eli. Marty oh. Crowley. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, Mar Marty Coley in his volume of the audio. Marty Coley in his outer darkness, he argues that entrance into heaven is is not based on uh, rewardable responses to God, and then he says that um, persevering faith is rewardable, and his conclusion is that it cannot be a condition for entrance into heaven. Do you agree with this kind of uh, syllogism? Say it again. Uh, I think I do, but say it once more. It kind of broke up a little bit when you started it. Well, he has a good deductive argument why entrance into heaven cannot be based on perseverance in the faith. He says that um, entrance into heaven is not based on rewardable, rewardable responses to God. Um, and the second premise is that persevering faith is rewardable. Therefore, entrance into heaven is not based on persevering faith. Oh, absolutely. I agree. Okay, so here's my question, though. Uh, is perseverance in a dead faith rewardable? No. So if no, a dead faith, why can't dead faith is what? Well, go ahead. Excuse me. Yeah. So the question is, according to this argument, why can't persevering faith be a condition? I mean, why can't a persevering dead faith be a condition to entrance into heaven? If it's not rewardable. Yeah, it's non a dead faith can't be rewardable because only faith that perseveres is rewarded. But the perseverance is not to get into heaven. It's toward uh, benefit at the judgment seat of Christ. And, and the benefit is greater intimacy, greater opportunities for service, and greater honor. Okay. But according to the argument, persevering faith cannot be a condition because it's rewardable. But if dead faith can, I mean, if perseverance in a dead faith is not rewardable, why cannot it be a, um, at least some condition, some kind of condition uh, for entrance into heaven? Well, dead faith. If a person is born again and he has dead faith, he's going to heaven. That's my point in James 2. It has nothing to do with entrance into heaven. It has to do with uh, deliverance from temporal difficulties and uh, deliverance from a negative assessment of one's life at the judgment seat of Christ. Does that answer? I maybe so, maybe something here, Eli. Would you say perseverance in the faith is rewardable if it's only a living faith? Yes, well, a living faith. 
Well, you see, you're, you're uh, putting a definition on faith there. Uh, yeah, it's only a living faith that's rewardable. But, but by that, I don't mean born again. I mean a living walk of faith. Yeah. See, I think that's where the distinction would be drawn is, is defining the term of a dead faith versus a living faith. And in the context of James 2, which would be the, the reference here, it is a faith that it is is real. It's it's a it's a born again Christian, but the reference would be the reward of the Christian in a faith that's working and living and and moving, as opposed to um, a, 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 the definition of a dead faith that that would be useless, rendered useless, and not worth anything. Yeah. So what what I was trying to understand is. If, pers if the mere persuasion that um, Christ is the Savior and he died for me, if the mere pers persuasion is not rewardable, as you agreed, then why do we say that it cannot be a condition for um, entrance into heaven? I mean, the perseverance in the mere persuasion in the truth of the gospel. Do you understand? Not quite, because it's possible for a true believer not to persevere in that persuasion that Christ is God and that the gospel is true. He can become an apostate. In fact, that's what the whole book of Hebrews is about. These people were in danger of apostasy, denying the faith altogether. At least Judaism was real. There was legal. Uh, so they were thinking about going back to Judaism and avoiding the persecution Nero was heaping on the Christians. Those they were they were thinking of chucking the faith altogether. That's what he's warning them against. But the consequence that uh, he's warning them about is not loss of salvation. It's loss of inheritance. And there's two kinds of inheritance in the Bible. There's a reward inheritance, Colossians three twenty four, and there's a salvation inheritance. And you know the difference because one is obtained by works and one is obtained by faith alone. Yeah, but why was he warning them from the loss of um, reward if the mere persuasion, I mean, the mere uh, persevering in persuasion is not rewardable? Persuade, persuasion is rewardable if they, if they continued in their persuasion of the truthfulness of the gospel. That's Okay, that's so that's what I was trying to understand. Yeah, that's what I was trying to understand. Okay. Perfect. Cool. Good to okay. hear from you, Eli. Eli, thanks. <laughs> thanks for calling in. You're welcome back anytime. And uh, I think um, that'll, that'll, that was good. So good questions, man. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Joshua. Bye. All right, let's. Uh, we've got some questions that have been typed into the live chat. I know. Let me get the camera back. Let me get me back in here as well. But we'll just do a couple more of these. I know we were planning on doing about a half an hour. Um, and Shannon, I know you had a question. You were the very first person to type in with a question. Uh, so if you get a chance to, if you're still listening to this, call in. Um, uh, either either on the the call in line or the video the video chat whatever you prefer I know you tried to call in earlier so you you can get that question but while while we're waiting for Shannon to respond I did have uh, one that came in from Laura Kakashki I think I'm saying that right Laura says I'm new to free grace I've done lots of study 
Yankee A, Charlie B, Kakuza, Kevin Thompson, and gotten to know my Bible way better. But I trip up on 1 John 3, 8 through 10. And uh, yes, Calvinism is poison. So Jody, if, if you get a chance, how would you help clear up for Laura uh, the, the passage in 1 John 3, 8 through 10? And I'll see if I can turn to that unless you beat me. Beat me to it. We can read it for the audience as well. Oh, I think I've, I've got it here unless you've got it pulled up. I got it. Okay. I'm reading out of the NASB. What was your name? Was it Laura? Yeah, Laura Kakoshki, I think that's how you Okay, Laura. Okay, first, this is a, a tough passage for everybody, uh, including me. But let me, I'll, I'll give you my best shot. <laughs> Verse 8, the one, I'm reading from the NASB. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin, because he's born of God. Now, <laughs> you know, you read that. I remember I read it. John, you need to talk to my wife. Uh, <laughs> I know I'm born of God, but I can sin. So what's going on? She'll, uh, she'd be happy to verify that. Um, couple. Oh, we're having some issues with the yeah. video. Uh, you, you blocked okay. out there for about five seconds, um, but you started okay. to say the problem. Um. <laughs> Let me see here. The, 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 the one who practices sin is of the devil. Uh, my first point about this is that word practices is a unique translation, and it's intended to imply that it's a, it's a practice of sin, a continuous pattern of life. I don't believe that answers the the agnostic objection at all i think anyone who sins period is how you can literally translate it from greek is of the devil so the believer who sins even once is his point uh and when he and i'll get i'll explain that in a minute uh and then in verse nine where it says he cannot sin because he's born of god well John said in chapter one, anyone who says he doesn't sin is a liar. And now, <laughs> and now he's saying uh, that a believer or anyone who says he cannot sin, so it's possible to say that. So what has John contradicted himself? Okay, to put it in the, in the context of what John is trying to refute here, the Gnostics said, oh yeah, a Christian can sin. Because the semi-perfect God has all these emanations, less and less and less perfect, till the one that created us is a mixture of good and bad. Therefore, there's no problem with the Christian being sinful and good at the same time. So that led to their licentiousness. Sin was irrelevant. Yeah, Christians do it. 
God is coming back saying, no, he can't sin at all. However, he qualifies is of the devil. Now, he doesn't mean that uh, practices of sin. Uh, well, let me say it a little differently. He's of the devil in the sense that that kind of behavior is devilish. It's not saying that Satan's driving at him. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is God sins even once, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. Yeah. And so the, what he's getting at is the way that the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. In other words, he's, it's of the devil in the sense it becomes obvious the way that you could discern whether, like we might say, that that state is not of God. Now, the origin of that. Uh, so what he's saying here is that uh, this is how we reveal the source of our action, not whether we're born again or not. We reveal whether we're walking the Christian life by how we behave. And if there's one sin, it's of the devil. It reveals that in that instance, we were not walking out the Christian life. So he cannot sin because he's born of God. Now, so what you have here, because God's seed abides in him, and he can't sin because he's born of God. So because God's seed abides in him, he doesn't want to sin. And according to the rest of the New Testament, he doesn't have to sin. Romans 6, sin will not have dominion over you. Now, what a person doesn't have to do, what he doesn't want to do, he doesn't do it continuously, habitually. He might fall and fail. But generally speaking, his life will be characterized as walking by faith and pursuing faithfulness in life to the end. Uh, yes, yeah, so in the way that I understand it, Shannon, we've got you on the screen. I'm going to cut it over to you. I, I took myself off the screen just because uh, when I've got the three of us on, I don't have enough computer power to keep it all running, and it just kind of breaks up. So, Shannon, we'll get your question in, and uh, then I'll, I'll cut off with you just because the video quality isn't as good as it needs to be if I keep everybody on in, in the audio. But um, for me personally, I the way that I understand that in First John 3 is, is kind of understanding the differences of, of the flesh and, and the, the spirit, the soul of the Christian. I think that um, it's possible for a Christian when they sin to sin in, in the flesh. I think those distinctions would be a reference to those who, where, where you can't sin if you're a Christian. It would be a reference to the, the circumcision that was made without hands and the side that's been set apart and sealed until the day of redemption. While your flesh can still sin, it'd be a reference to the old nature and new nature. But um Jody does a lot better at breaking that down and, and kind of getting into the mind of John and where John goes with it. But for me, and I may be off a little bit there, but that's the way that I understand it. it, it it's kind of a reference to the old nature and new nature and, and sin being present with you and those kinds of things. Um, but I don't think it's a reference to uh, an, an eternal destination of a Christian who sins versus the eternal destination of a Christian who doesn't sin. But anyways, um, Shannon, I've got your mic on. I, I think your mic is on. Oh, you've got your mic muted. So, Shannon, whenever you're ready, just unmute your mic and and uh, 
you're ready to go. So thanks for coming on. Can you, okay, go can ahead. you hear me okay? Yeah, we can hear you. Okay, you know, I don't know on Mr. Jody, but if I heard you correctly, I always like to refer back to that wedding banquet in Matthew 22. And you were speaking, I think, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong now, about the reward, about the reward. To me, and just if you could explain it more, uh, my question was, it seems like at the end of that parable that... In other words, this, this whole parable is about salvation to me, is the way I understand it, and we're on, if we're on the same page. But when he said, when the king was wondering how that man got in the banquet to start with, and then he was kicked out, was, was smashing the teeth, is that talk? To me, that seems like he wasn't come clothed in the garments. Just not better. Uh, yeah, we're cutting let me make on one the, or two. Off. Go ahead. We we're cutting out on the audio and the video there, so that's my fault, guys. I need to get some better equipment to make it run a little better. But, but Shannon, I think uh, if I'm understanding your question, your question is uh, the guy who made it into the banquet. Uh, he made it in and was cast out. Um, not because of anything other than the fact that he didn't have the right wedding garments on. So this would be, this would seem to be someone who was cast out, who was never a Christian to begin with. Am I understanding your question, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to, yeah, well, my, my point is, um, that in the book of revelation, those garments are defined for us, not as justification of Christ but he specifically says those garments are the righteous acts of the saints in other words it was uh, he, <laughs> he was cast out of the wedding banquet but not out of salvation because he simply didn't have the righteous acts but let's look at la that labors in the vineyard are you, is that where you are in uh, Matthew 20 um, I actually had had to drop that side of the video call, so I'm not sure I'm going to get an answer from him unless unless you type it in, Shannon. But um, I think we're just going to have to do the best that we can. You remember if it was 20 or 22? I can't remember. Uh, I Matthew 20, I believe. Let me double check here. Oh, where do I put my notes? Yeah, there it is. Matthew 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that's a householder which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. Okay. Well, let me let me make just a few comments about that. You'll notice uh, the in verse 1, it says, For the kingdom of heaven is like. So in other words, he's pointing back to something he's just said. And he's expanding on it, explaining what he just said. And that's in the preceding verse, which is verse 30 of chapter 19, where he says, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So the subject is not about entrance, nation sense, but 
ranking first or last. So that's what the labors in the vineyard is about. And then he ends this uh, little discussion about the labors in the vineyard um, in verse 16. Thus the last shall be first and the first last. So this has nothing to do with getting to heaven when you die. It's about ranking within the kingdom. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um, and then he ties it into Matthew 22 as, as it's related to uh, the marriage for the king's son and uh, sending forth the servants to bid those to come. And, and I think that uh, Shannon is, is making a reference to that servant who would be cast out, which I know you had talked about this, but specifically I think his question is, that that person he he believes that was cast out and is gnashing of teeth into outer darkness is is cast out because he he sees the wedding garments being not a not a picture of the righteousness of he he would see the wedding garment as the righteousness of Christ putting on Christ our righteousness is being clothed in Christ and yours drawing the distinction saying no that righteousness is linked to what revelation talks about as being the righteousness of of the saints the work of the saints in reference to reward for service, not in reward for salvation. So when they're cast out of the marriage, they're cast out of the banquet. It's uh, it's it's for showing up without the the clothing of having done anything for Christ in this life. Am I understanding you right there, Jody? Yeah, John uses the phrase the righteous acts of the saints. It's not the justifying righteousness of Christ, and what he's. Well, he's not excluded from the kingdom. He's in the kingdom. Yeah. This guy in Matthew 20. He's just last. Okay, that's good. Now, we okay. do have a follow-up from Laura Kakashki, and uh, that was in reference to the 1 John 3 passage that was brought up uh, as those who practice sin would be of the devil. And, and, and she says, I'm saved, I know it, and I practice sin. Pride, gossip, lack of exp expressing thankfulness, am I of the devil? Jody, how would you how would you address Laura's question there as it's related to sin and being Yeah, evil? what I was trying to get at there was that in that instance of sin, in that particular action, you're of the devil. Just like when I do uh, something faithful or do a good work for the benefit of Christ, I'm of God in that particular action. But to be of the devil in a particular point simply means, look, that's a devilish response you made. It's not saying you're a non-believer. Right. Okay, now we've been going for a little over two hours, guys. We've done um, open questions from, I know we've got a lot more questions that are coming in. And Jody, you may see some questions that have been coming in on your end. If there's something that you that you would like to address, you can. But I think what we've seen, even in these these questions to what we've been talking about in, in our conversation before these questions, is the relationship of works to salvation and the necessity of works for salvation. Uh, and, and you can see in some of the responses, even to Laura's Laura's question, is if if she does if she sins, then she is of the devil. She's not saved. And the free grace position seems to say, you are a, you're you're still a Christian if you sin. You shouldn't sin, 
but it doesn't separate you from Christ in the sense of ending up in eternity. So it's a little more specific than that. What I'm saying is of the devil does not mean you're not a Christian. Right. It means a particular action, that particular sin, you're of the devil. It's a devilish act. Right. Uh, so it's, it's not saying that you're not a Christian. Because all Christians sin. In fact, John in uh, chapter one says, if you say you don't sin, you're a liar. So now he can't be saying, well, if you sin, you're of Satan, meaning you're going to hell. He'd be contradicting himself. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, make sense? Okay. I think I've got it. Um, all right. Now, I'd, I'd like to ask you if, if you, I don't know if you were keeping up with the comments or not. Um, but I can't see any comments on uh, oh, you can't. my screen. I don't know how to read them, but see, you have to read them to me. Well, okay, we'll take one more call, Johanna or Johanna. Let's end with this one. This will be our last call, guys, and then we'll we'll close it out with Jody and go from there. So let me see if I've got you on. It looks like the video is coming in, and your microphone is muted. Let me get the microphone unmuted. Maybe it's muted on your end. Is it Johanna? I've got you on the live stream. I'm going to get your video in. I can see you've come on, but it looks like your microphone is muted. So if you could unmute your microphone, we'll get you on with Jody. There should be a button there. Yeah, there should, there should be a button there. Johanna, um, there you go. It looks like you've unmuted yourself. So let me get you and Jody on, just the two of you. And uh, it looks like the volume should be good. The picture's all right. And I'll try to be quiet. So um, how do you say your name? Is it Johanna or Johanna? Looks like her speaker isn't turned on. Yeah, it looks like... Okay, so we're not getting any sound for some reason. Um can you say something, Johanna? Yeah, we can't hear you. I don't know what the deal is. Uh, maybe your microphone is muted, the actual mic, or because it looks like everything's good on our end. Okay, you're muted. Now you're unmuted. Man, I don't know what the deal is on that. I've not had that issue. Before. Can you send her a chat, a chat message? Yeah, why don't you send a chat? Um, I'm not sure why we can't get the sound through. Uh, but if you could, if you you know what would be even better? Why don't you call this number 816-866-0025 and I'll just get the audio in and we'll do it that way. So Johanna, if, you, if you're still listening to us, call 816-866-0025 and we'll end with, with your question and go from there. So uh, let me see. We've still got a lot more going in. Laura, Laura Kakashki says, I've got it makes sense so i think that was that was helping with first john three and well good first john one there so but if we don't get the call to come in or typed in let me just make sure all right so here's the question from johanna Haitong, i probably butchering that i'm sorry about that <laughs> here's the question is eternal security part of the content of saving faith and I'll put that on the screen for those of you who are viewing. 
So, Jody, how would you answer that? Is eternal security part of the content of saving faith? Objectively, yes. Subjectively, no. In other words, you do, what I'm saying is you do not have to believe in eternal security to be a Christian. Um, the Bible promises eternal security. I wrote a whole chapter on this in Final Destiny because it doesn't depend on us. It depends on God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So our security is, is certain uh, without going into all the details here. Um, but you don't have to believe that to be a Christian or to remain as a Christian. You may feel you're not secure because you're trying to base your salvation on something besides the promises of God. But uh, I know there are some people within the free grace movement that believe uh, if you don't believe in eternal security, you're not saved. I don't believe that. Yeah. Because I think yeah. people have good people like John Wesley. You mean to tell me he wasn't saved? There's uh, denominations that don't believe that, of wonderful, godly people. So belief in eternal security is not a necessary requirement for going to heaven when you die. There's only one thing, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Of course, you're asking, well, does eternal security, is that part of the content of that faith? I'd say no. Yeah, I'm with you on that. It's a persuasion. It's a persuasion that uh, Christ died for you and your sins are forgiven and you're trusting in that instead of your own works. Awesome. That's great. I think that's a good place to end. So uh, Johanna says, thank you. I, I'm sorry if I'm saying your name wrong again, but uh, Jody Dello, I really appreciate you coming on. Guys, go check out his book, Final Destiny. That's uh, got a lot to do with what we're talking about with Calvinism, free grace, and some of these problem texts as it's related to the reward of the believer those who are cast out of the kingdom, the wedding banquet, things like that. So uh, there's a lot more that we could talk about, a lot more that I'd like to talk about. Um, but maybe maybe that would be for next time if we get a next time. But even if we don't, Jody, I really appreciate you coming on. It's been fun. It's been good. And hopefully for those of you who are viewing, uh, it's been helpful to you. Um, so anyways, Jody, if, uh, if, if there's somebody that has a question about free grace theology or about salvation or or something that you've written, is there any way for them to get in contact with, with you personally uh, to get some of those questions answered? Or, or uh, how would that Feel happen? free to email me. Uh, the email is... at Earthlink, E A R T H L I N K dot net. Jody Dillo 0905 at Earthlink dot net. And I'll make a free offer here. If any of you want to write and you want a copy, a electronic copy of uh, the book Final Destiny that deals with all these questions, I'll be happy to send you one for free. It'll be a PDF document. Hey, that's a good offer there. That's, uh, the book is over 1,100 pages, and it's it's jam-packed with footnotes, and it's got a great bibliography. 
um, but it deals with in, in depth these questions that we were talking about today on this podcast, on this episode. So um, I would encourage you guys to go check that out and take advantage of <laughs> emailing Mr. Dillo if you get a chance to. Um, I, it's, it's, it's good having you on. So thank you again for coming on. You're welcome back anytime. Okay. Love being with you guys. Thanks for everything. Thanks again. Have a good evening. And guys, I'm going to cut to the closing scene here. Let's uh, give you an update on what's coming up uh, kind of down through the pipeline and, and go from there. But anyways, it was good to have Jody on to talk about these issues. Um, I think they're important issues, like like our first caller said, uh, dealing with works and salvation and rewards and Calvinism and free grace and all these things can be confusing. But at the end of the day, I think the message is your salvation is based nothing more than on the work of Christ, what Christ has done. We can't contribute to that. We can't do anything to keep ourselves saved. We can't do anything to take our safe, ourselves out of Christ once we've, once we've been saved. And that's because we're kept by Christ. We're saved by Christ. We're kept by Christ. But when it comes to the rewards of the Christian, that is conditional upon, uh, that is conditional upon your service, uh, the inheritance of the Christian. So anyways, guys, stay tuned. Next week, November 1st, we're going to have Webb Neely on. We're going to talk about new creation perspective. He's kind of got a, a unique perspective as it's related to new creation. And then November 8th, we, we're, we're working on a debate with... Uh, uh, I, I can't. I can't remember Matt. I can't remember his last name off the top of my head. But he believes in baptism is uh, for baptism for salvation. You, you must be water baptized in order to go to heaven. So we'll see what happens with that, and stay tuned um, for what's coming up. We'll keep you updated and go from there. But please like and ship, subscribe and, and share these videos. Feel free to, and uh, always feel free to message me on Facebook or on YouTube or Twitter or email. Anyways, guys, God bless. I hope you enjoyed that, and I hope it was beneficial. Talk to you later.